Hi, this is Kristen Regal. And this is Paul Rock. And welcome to the Common Room Podcast. Um, every Sunday at 1045, we gather together to talk about life and spirituality, about the common experiences we share, as well as some of the questions we wrestle with. We hope you enjoy this, and we hope to see you some Sunday at 1045. Last week, we talked about Jezebel and how uh, we have taken a very complicated character and, and flattened her and, and made her easier to, uh, to hate and disregard. And then this week, as we move to talking about Elijah, who is the hero of that, that story um, with Jezebel, um, we also realize that we tend to flatten our heroes and make them more uh, ideal and perfect than they actually are. And so uh, today we talk about Elijah and his ups and his downs and his journey that was uh, flawed as well as, um, as faithful. So uh, enjoy. We are introduced to this character, Elijah, um, at the end of chapter 16, where King Ahab says uh, that he is going to follow and worship King Baal, uh, along with his new wife, Jezebel. Elijah shows up and he says, uh, Ahab, I am a man of God, I am Elijah, and because of what you're doing, uh, there will be no rain in all of Israel for a few years. It's just not going to rain until you stop this practice of worshiping Baal. We need to worship Yahweh. And so Elijah, from that stance, goes off into the, into the wilderness, and he disappears, kind of makes himself unfindable. God says, I want you to go to this brook called Cherith. So those of you who have worked at our partner, ministry partner, Cherith Brook, that's where their name comes from. So this brook that's called Cherith, I want you to go there and I'm going to take care of you. Um, so he goes there and he lives there for a while and it gets really difficult because the brook runs dry. And then God begins to provide um, um, Elijah with bread. He brings crows. Crows bring him food to eat on a daily basis. It's a wonderful story. After some time... Um, God says, Elijah, I want you to go from here, and I want you to go to this village called Zarephath. And uh, at this village, uh, Elijah runs into this woman who is herself, um, her, her husband has died. She's a widow, uh, and she's got a son. And he, as he runs into her at the gate, uh, she says, um, I'm on my way to bake the last piece of bread for myself and my son so that we can die, because this is all the bread, all the water, all, all, all the oil we have left. And Elijah says, I hear you. But do me a favor, bake that bread and give it to me, because I'm really hungry. And then, if you trust me, I believe that God is going to continue to provide oil and water and bread so that then the next loaf that you bake, you can bake it for yourself and your, and your son. So for some reason, this widow does it. And, and sure enough, the oil and the water and the, and the, and the wheat continue to um, be produced, and, and she and Elijah and her son live for some time on this simple meal, uh, for a number of days. We're not quite sure how long. And at one point, the widow uh, tells him, um, my son is sick and he has died. And Elijah says, no, he hasn't died. Don't worry about it. He goes into the room, he prays for him, and her son comes back to life. So you already start to see some parallels, right? These stories about Elijah, were the stories that were told about Jesus based on these stories? Or was it a way to say, hey, Jesus is like Elijah or even better than Elijah? Or did Jesus actually do those things? We're not quite sure, but definitely a parallel happens between these two men of God. So um, while Elijah is kind of in Cherith Brook and, and, and Zarephath with this widow and her son doing, doing miraculous stuff, back at um, Jezreel, which is the headquarters of the northern kingdom where, where Ahab and Jezebel are, Ahab is sending people all over the kingdom and saying, listen, we've got to find uh, grass for our cattle and our sheep. Um, 
And while you're at it, I want you also to find the prophets of, um, of Yahweh, the, the people who serve Yahweh, and I want you to kill them. So find some grass for our sheep and our goats and whatever and, and kill the prophets. One of, his, one of um, Ahab's main guys that says he's the ruler of his palace, like his, his chief of staff, his name is Obadiah. And Obadiah, right, right-hand man of Ahab, but he doesn't believe in what he's doing. And so as he's out looking for like grass for the cattle and stuff, he finds some prophets and as he finds them, he hides them in caves. He ends up hiding, it says, the story says, a hundred different prophets of Yahweh. So he saves them so they're not going to be killed or hurt by Ahab or Jezebel. Uh, he brings them food. So that's kind of an interesting little aside, this Obadiah. God's doing this thing. Obadiah happens to be apparently somewhere near Zarephath because he runs into Elijah. He's like, oh, is that you, Elijah? Elijah's like, yeah, it's me. Is that you, Obadiah? Yeah, I want you to go tell Ahab I want to go see him. And Obadiah's like, no chance. If I go away and don't take you and you disappear, he's going to kill me because he hates you. He's been looking for you forever. So Ahab's like, fine, great, we'll go together. So they go together to, fight, to talk to Ahab. And so that's where I'm going to start to read, okay? You with me? So Obadiah meant, uh, went to meet with Ahab, and he told him what happened. And then Ahab went to meet with Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is that you, the one who troubles Israel? And Elijah answered, I haven't troubled Israel. You and your father's house have. So, oh, I'm sorry. That's, that's Elijah and Obadiah, by the way. That's what they look like. Um, that was Elijah telling Obadiah to go tell Ahab that I want to talk to him. So that is Elijah coming out of the wilderness, finding Ahab and saying, Yeah, it's me. And, um, and Ahab says, Are you the one who troubles Israel? And Elijah says, I haven't troubled Israel. You and your father's house have troubled Israel. You did as much when you deserted the Lord's commands and followed the balls. Now, send a message and gather all of Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel. You guys ever heard of Carmel? Carmel by the sea? Yeah, it was named after this hill, which was up against the Mediterranean. It was in the northwest part of, 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 uh, of Israel. So it's up against the Mediterranean coast. It's a hill there, and they called it Mount Carmel. He says, I want you to gather 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's tables, who are a part of your, um, of your household. Ahab sent the message to all the Israelites. He gathered the prophets at Mount Carmel. Elijah approached all the people and he said, How long will you hobble back and forth between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow God. If Baal is God, then follow Baal. But the people gave no answer. Elijah then said to the people, I am the last of the Lord's prophets. Is that true? Is that true? What did Obadiah done? Remember what Obadiah did? We know at least a hundred of them are hidden. You know, God's taking care of them. Obadiah's doing his thing. But Ahab, I mean, Elijah, I'm the last. That's his, that's his mantra. I'm the last of Yahweh's prophets. But Baal's prophets, number 450. Now, give us two bulls. Let Baal's prophets choose one of the bulls. They'll cut it apart and set it on the wood, but don't add fire. I will prepare the other bull. I'll put it on the wood, and I won't add fire. Then, all of you call on the name of your God, and I'll call on the name of Yahweh. And the God who answers with fire, now that is the real God. And the people answered, that is an excellent idea. What an excellent idea. So everybody, you know, get... They, you know, I can just see them like tailgating and whatever. They don't have any water, but they're, they pull up their chairs and like, this is going to be awesome. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls, prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but don't add fire. So they took one of the bulls they had brought to him, they prepared it, and they called on Baal's name from morning till midday. So here's the prophets of Baal. 
They have sacrificed a bull. You can see its horns up there on the altar. There's Mount Carmel in the background, and they are calling out to their God, Great ball, answer us. But there was no sound or answer. They performed a hopping dance around the altar that had been set up. So some sort of ecstatic dance would be interesting to see. Um, Around noon, Elijah started making fun of them. So he's a a taunter. So here's Elijah yelling at him. He says, "Uh, shout louder. Certainly he's a god. Perhaps he... Maybe he's lost in thought, or he's wandering, or he's traveling somewhere. Or maybe he's asleep, and you must wake him up. So what do we call people like this? In my family, we call them smartass. So (laughs) he's taunting these folks as they're doing their ritualistic stuff. So the prophets of Baal cried with louder voice and even cut themselves with swords and knives, as was their custom. Their blood flowed all over them. As noon passed, they went crazy with their ritual until it was time for the evening offering. Still, there was no sound or answer, no response whatsoever. Then Elijah said to all the people, Hey, come here. And all the people closed in, and he repaired the Lord's altar that had been damaged. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the Lord's word came, and said, Your name will be Israel. And he built the stones into an altar in the Lord's name. And he dug a trench around the altar big enough to hold two seahs of grain, dry grain. And he put wood in order. And he butchered the bull. And he placed the bull on the wood. And then he said this. He said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the sacrifice and on the wood. Why is that a big deal? Why would that be a scandalous thing to do? Because just wet wood doesn't ignite. Right. So wet wood does not ignite. There's no water. We're in the middle of a drought. So a a bucket of water is worth what? I mean, hundreds of lives, maybe. I mean, this is is liquid gold. I want you to pour it on this thing. So, um, yeah. So they did. And then, here I got a little drawing of them pouring the water on the wood. Do it a second time, he said. So they did it a second time. Do it a third time. I mean, they must think this guy is just... So they did it a third time. The water flowed around the altar, and even the trench was filled with water. At the time of the evening offering, the prophet Elijah drew near and prayed, Lord Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. I have done all these things at your instructions. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that these people will know that you, Yahweh, are the real God and you can change their hearts. Then the Lord's fire fell. There it is. It consumed the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the dust. It even licked up the water in the trench. All the people saw this and fell on their faces. The Lord is the real God. The Lord is the real God, they exclaimed. Elijah said to them, Now, seize Baal's prophets. Don't let any of them escape. And the people seized the prophets, and Elijah brought them to Kishon Brook and killed them there. Many uh, of the translations say they slaughtered them there. So how many of them did they slaughter? 400 at least. I mean, there's 450 of the other ones, so I'm not sure how many, but it was, it was a lot. Then Elijah said to Ahab, the king, Get up! Celebrate with food and drink, because I hear the sound of a rainstorm coming. So Ahab got up to celebrate with food and drink. I mean, what a dunce this guy is. I just don't understand Ahab at all. <laughs> oh, okay, I'll get up and have, you know. So he's like, great, okay, party time. Um, So he gets up to celebrate with food and drink. But Elijah went to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed down to the ground and put his face between his legs, and he prayed. 
And he said to his assistants, please get up and look towards the sea. So the assistant did so. And he said, I don't see anything. Seven times, Elijah, he would pray, and then he'd say, go do it again, go look. The seventh time, the assistant said, I see a small cloud the size of a human hand coming up from the sea. Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, pull yourself together, go down the mountain, don't let the rain hold you back. After a little while, the sky became dark with clouds, and a wind came up in a huge rainstorm, and Ahab was already riding on his way to Jezreel, but the Lord's power strengthened Elijah And he gathered up his clothes and he ran in front of Ahab until he came to Jezreel. So this wonderful triumphant story of Elijah and his power and his charisma and even his prayer power. I mean, quite the man of God. And then it says in chapter 19, Ahab, King Ahab, told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. How he had killed all of Baal's prophets with the sword. Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah with this message. May the gods do whatever they want to me if by this time tomorrow I haven't made your life like the life of one of them. So basically, you're done. I'm I'm coming after you. Elijah was terrified. He got up and he ran for his life. He arrived at Beersheba in Judah and he left his assistant there. He himself went further on a day's journey into the desert. He finally sat down under a solitary broom bush and he longed for his own death. So it's just interesting to see this person who's had this incredible success and in the power of the Lord, and then literally over, you know, he gets he gets scared and he takes off, he leaves his assistant behind, and he heads out into the desert, and uh, he's alone, and he basically is he's done. To 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 you know the 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 ways that our life works and the ups and the downs and the challenges that we endure. Um, you know, here's a man of God who basically goes from a massive victory um, to pretty serious depression, right? It's more than enough, Lord. Take my life because I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he laid down and he slept under a solitary... Oh, there he is, there he is running away from, uh, from Jezebel. I'm no better than my ancestors. So he lay down to sleep under a bush. Then suddenly a messenger, and another word for messenger in the Hebrew is angel, tapped him on the shoulder and said to him, Get up, eat something. And Elijah opened his eyes and saw flatbread baked on glowing coals and a jar of water right by his head. He ate and he drank, and he went back to sleep. The Lord's messenger returned a second time and tapped him and said, Get up, eat something, because you've had a difficult road ahead of you. Um, one, of the, one of the first things that I've learned to share with folks who are struggling um, you know, with anxiety or depression is just to ask, So how, how, did you, like, how are you sleeping? Because sometimes what we need to do is just kind of get back to the basics and take care of us. Like, are you are you getting to bed on time? Are you are you are you sleeping? Do you need help? Are you eating well? Sometimes the most spiritual thing we can do is get a nap, get on a good schedule, sleep, exercise, eat. Um, so I think it's just kind of neat that the, that the angel comes to him at a very basic level and says, "I'm just going to put you to sleep." Right? I mean, babies are in a little better mood once they've had a little bit of sleep, yeah, and uh, can get a get a full belly. So, um, messenger says to him, get up, you're going to have a difficult road ahead of you. So Elijah got up and he ate and he drank and he went refreshed by that food for 40 days and 40 nights. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. Until he arrived at Horeb, God's mountain. Now, the mountain of God, I cut and pasted this from a children's Bible, so forgive me, it's, it's kind of weird and stuff. But on the way top, you see Damascus? That, that, that's, that would be north of Israel. In the bottom there, that's the Sinai Peninsula. To the left would be Egypt. There's the 
Mediterranean to the left over there. Um, so that distance that he traveled basically in this whole story here is uh, 300 miles to get down to Mount Horeb. Another name for Mount Horeb is Mount Sinai. That's the mountain where God gave the commandments to the people of Israel. And so it's this kind of dramatic thing for Elijah to travel all this way, apparently by himself. Did he actually do it? I don't know. But, um, but he, to get to Mount Sinai, to get to the place like the mountain of God, um, and there he finds himself. There he went into a cave to spend the night. Then Yahweh, the word of the Lord, came to, the Lord's word came to him and said to him, Why are you here, Elijah? Isn't that just what you'd want to hear after you've traveled 300 miles and you've been through all this stuff? What, what are you doing here? Why are you here, Elijah? And Elijah replied, I have been very passionate for the Lord God of the heavenly forces because the Israelites have abandoned your covenant. They have torn down your altars. They have murdered your prophets with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they want to take my life too. Now again, was he the only one left? Right? This is, this is one of those things that we do when we find ourselves in those caves. Uh, we find ourselves under broom trees alone, and we just want to die. Typically the story that we tell ourselves is, I, I'm the only one that understands myself. I'm, the, I'm alone. There's no one else. And the fact of the matter is, God is always with us. And there's no depth or height we can go to where God isn't there with us and love with us. And the other thing is, we typically lie to ourselves and, and we tell ourselves untrue narratives that just kind of spiral us further. The fact of the matter was, God had taken care of it. There were other problems. It was going to be okay. Um, Elijah just had to quit telling himself that same story, but, but um, he has a hard time with that because he keeps, he keeps doing it. Now, this is what God says. God says, go out and stand in the mountain of the Lord because Yahweh is passing by. And then a strong wind tore through the mountains and broke apart the stones before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire there was a sound, thin and quiet. Or as some texts say, there was a whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his coat. He went out and stood at the cave's entrance. A voice came to him and said, Why are you here, Elijah? What are you doing? And he said again, I've been very passionate for the Lord God of the heavenly forces because the Israelites have abandoned your covenant. They have torn down your altars. They have murdered your prophets with a sword. I'm the only one left, and now they want to take my life too. And Yahweh said to him, I want you to go back. Go back through the desert. Go to Damascus. And I want you to anoint Hazel as king of Aram. And I want you to anoint Jehu, Nimshi's son, as king of Israel. And then I also want you to anoint Elisha from Abel-Moloah. Shephath's son, to succeed you as prophet. The end. We'll end there. What a story, right? What, uh, what stuck out to you that whole thing? If, if, if we look at Elijah as this man of God, what were the things that were kind of amazing and, and uh, of note? And then as we look look at Elijah through the lens, through the hermeneutic of Jesus. What are the other things that are a little bit challenging if Elijah is going to be our example of success or of the faithful follower of 
of Yahweh. Yeah. Okay, so I don't understand. He clearly got the fire from God to come down on him to sacrifice, and everybody was like, oh, we believe now. Like, this is life-changing. We're all here. But then he killed all of them. Like, I don't understand yeah. why he just wouldn't use those people, because obviously they probably, like, they just thought something They experienced it, too, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. So, like, why wouldn't you just keep them around and be like, Go tell the word. Mm-hmm. Like, go say what you saw. I don't understand why he just had to kill all of them. Yeah. Like, that was just a power-hungry thing that yeah. he kind of got caught into, or what, you know? Yeah. I, I think that's, that's a good, that's a really good question. It's more with two separate, two separate groups, so there were <coughs> the prophets of Baal, but there were also others there that he told them to kill the prophets. That's how I read it. Oh, Okay. Well, he says, he says to the people of Israel, kill the prophets of Baal. So I, I think the way that it's typically been interpreted is that the, that the prophets of Baal are kind of like the foreigners who are serving uh, Jezebel and Ahab, and let's kill them. And um, what, what, what would be a narrative that would, that would help to justify that or would make sense of that kind of... Do you see that happening in society today? Do, do you see that, yes. that understanding of justice that understanding of righteousness happening today. Yeah, right. You killed some of us, we'll kill some of you. I mean, that's that's how that that's the practical way that's the world works. And and you do these things that are that are evil, that are wrong, and we're going to do whatever it takes to rid our land of you, uh, and if that calls for slaughter, then that's what we'll do. And sadly, a lot of times in society, uh, it is the religious, the fervently religious people that are the most bloody, right? Whether you're killing the Rohingyas as Buddhists, uh, killing Rohingyas, if you're, if you're Muslims that are screaming for, uh, you know, take the lives of people who are against the ways of Allah, or if you're, if you're Christians um, who are trying to take, take lands or advance your understanding of righteousness, or if you're Jewish, I mean, it's, sadly, that narrative is pretty common. Right. Or, you know, right. and that was against their religion, and um, so it's a super interesting way how they present this, um, because I'm like, oh, that's so crazy how people yeah. hang on to their beliefs so closely that, yeah. you know, we have these savages. Well, they, yeah, they can land in a place that they themselves call a new world, <laughs> but the people already there, well, they're the outsiders. The savages of nature. Yeah. yeah. Other things in this story that stuck out to you? Things about Elijah, the way he worked or interacted, his his responses that spoke to you or were confusing to you or you thought were admirable? I don't really know Elijah because I don't really know much about the Bible, but he does not really seem like the man of God. Yeah, me. yeah. Selfish. Yeah. Why, why does he seem selfish? He's just, well, like we kind of talked about a little bit, he, is the, he thinks he's the only one left. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. like to me. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like telling the widow, like, give me this food. Yeah. I don't know, like, yeah. he's not God. No, he's not God. <laughs> he's a prophet, yeah. but just the way that he interacts with people makes me, like, not like him. Yeah. Who knows? She could have been desperate as well and being like, uh, "All right, I'm willing to roll the dice." And he said he was a miracle worker, and and then he did, you know, and ended up feeding her and saving her son. So, you know, he did. He was. He did do good stuff. I mean, there there are parts of him, and I think that's the thing that's complicated is that you can point to parts of Elijah, and for you know centuries. I mean, even to today, there are certain churches where Elijah is really held up as kind of the epitome. Um, you, you you focus on the things he did right, and 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 sadly, there's even parts of our religious community, Christian community that would kind of justify the in-your-face, almost objectifying of other people, even taunting other people who follow other ways, because it's just so, it's, God is so pure and God is so right. Anyone who would be, who would desecrate God's name or not worship God, you know, there's, it's almost as if you're, you're dirty or you're, you're evil. Um, and, and that sometimes, sometimes the ends justifies the means. And in the end, Yahweh was worshipped again, and the prophets of Baal were slaughtered and such. And so um, there's, there's a, certainly a Christian ethic that would say this. At, at times you need to be this way. You need to do these things in order for, for righteousness to take place. And sometimes it's, it's vicious. Um, the, the problem with that is I just don't see that in Jesus. There are plenty of opportunities where Jesus could have very righteously done a number of things and been like, you know, the, all the soldiers come to get him at the hill. Remember the, the last day of his life, and they got the swords and stuff. And, and Peter pulls out his knife, and Jesus is like, "Nope, it's not. That's not the way this is going to happen." In one of the texts, all of the soldiers fall down because Jesus said, "They said, who are you?" And he said, "I am." And just by saying the words "I am," like all the soldiers went, boom, they fell on the ground. Um, so Jesus had the power to be like, mm, "Nope, this isn't going to happen," and I can justify it. And he just didn't. There was something about Jesus that was, I think. There was, a, there was a higher spiritual um, ideal of nonviolence and of forgiveness and of inclusion that overrid those things. And the, the problem, I think, with a lot of our spirituality today is it's kind of situational um, and it gets caught up in the heat of the moment. And so we can justify hating, castigating, scapegoating, nullifying other people if it, if it puts forward our righteous view. And I got to tell you, more progressive liberal folks do this as much as more conservative evangelical folks, right? We other people, and we make them simple and stupid, and, and we can do, make, make our way of life or our, our decisions more righteous. Uh, we all do it, and I think that's the sin uh, that this story points out. It doesn't matter if it's your hero or if it is the slut. You don't, you don't flatten and objectify. Life is complicated, and, and make sure that we we recognize that. Any, anything else that, that kind of stuck out to you in this story? It's a it's an incredible story. 
connection to Jesus, I, I think a lot of it too, this is my understanding of Jesus, was he didn't feel the need to prove God. And this kind of, I know Old Testament and New Testament, there's a lot of differences, but Elijah keeps, to me, it seemed like he kept trying to show everyone and prove, like obviously with the big fire mm-hmm. thing, like, I'm going to prove to you that God's real, where Jesus was kind of like, no, I'm going to love you and you're going to know that God's real through my love. Yeah. And that, that just seemed very different. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, if you look at if you look at the things that Elijah did, uh, you could point to that and say, "Wow, he was kind of a badass and he won that fight and all that kind of stuff." And um, and most people, you know, say if you look at Jesus at the end of his ministry, he was a complete and utter failure. All of his closest followers left him, except for a handful of women and maybe one guy. Uh, he died in a filthy way, being crucified. So it's really it's an upside down understanding of, of success and greatness that really challenges us if you view life through the Jesus hermeneutic. And and yet this idea that 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 no God's gotta be in the power, God's gotta be like in the in, in the fire and um, the victory kind of stuff. Uh, I think there's some truth to that. You know, God's not, you know, God God's a part of victory. But there was one thing that Alex pointed out, I'll let him share it because it was his thought, because we read scripture together at the beginning of the week, what we're gonna preach on, and uh, talking about God in the fire, and uh, Alex, what, what was your... Yeah, basically, at the beginning of the, the passage, Elijah's talking about how God will come in fire and fury, and that's kind of his picture of, of God. Who wins, right? Yeah. Whoever's God comes, yeah. Right, and then, obviously, by the end of this story, God has come, but not in the wind or the earthquake or the fire and fury, but in the whisper. And so it's... Like the text just like makes a commentary on itself. I love it. And a very you know, it's like God. Then there's a fire, and it explicitly says, "And God wasn't in the fire." Isn't that interesting? That's one of the reasons I love scripture. It's like you read it, you love it. I mean, I've read this passage a hundred times. I've read. I was like, "Oh wow, that's that's pretty cool." So maybe even in the midst of this blood gore, the spirit of God is somehow like descending in there. Has anybody else grown up grown up in a tradition where, where Elijah was kind of esteemed or still is that kind of victorious spirituality is, is still kind of esteemed or held up? You are? Yeah. 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 But what does it what does it look like? Like how does that play out? How does that affect people's theology or worldview? Well, I mean I think it's
mirroring is that like the Bible they read Catholics canonize, right? But mm-hmm. they're right about <coughs> this is the correct verb, you know. It it just transfers, I think, into um, that kind of worldview. Yeah. There's no room for you know, like I guess being another view. Right. Really easy to think that love means weakness. I mean, like love is the most powerful force on earth, and, and it means both hands can't make that stand up together. Super when you soup good at least, right? It's with violence and fire, you know, as much as we want to think that God's in that element. Um, well, and it has the opposite effect, right? Yeah, it kind of does. It, that doesn't make other people want to be like <laughs> And certainly not other people that are already culturally very Yeah, yeah, it just widens the gap and calls more fire down. Mm-hmm. Well, I just have a question, because like growing up in the Lutheran church, I mean, I know I heard stories about this, I just felt like it was kind of the same things were re- reiterated, though. Like, I don't remember really going way in depth in some of these stories. Um, and then I kind of moved over to the very conservative side at one point where all of these characters were just lifted up as these, you know, really great people and prophets. And so with the whole Jesus hermeneutic thing that you were talking about, like I honestly had never heard anything about that until now. And so I was just curious, is that something that all denominations are talking about and discussing? Like, I get, I guess, because you think about people interpreting the Bible in different ways, and it makes you wonder, like, is this something that people are actually discussing so that it does cause them to maybe doubt and question? Because, I don't know, I, I have known some people that don't doubt or question anything, and they actually, you know, and it was a negative response to me when I did. Mm-hmm. So, is this a general thing that across all denominations that is discussed or not? So I think so. It is? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think probably to the extent uh, that, it, that, it, that it gets into the daily um, theology of the folks that are listening to in, in, in those churches. But, you know, you, you talk to the, uh, the folks that are involved in the Catholic Church, and like they uh, talked about earlier, the, the, the Jesuits, um, they, they, the reason they're called Jesuits is because they follow Jesus. And so the law of love is the law that they hold everything against. So if it's not loving, if it doesn't promote love the way Jesus defined love, then we don't do it. Or if it does, then we do it. And so they, they're the ones who establish hospitals and schools, and they care for orphans and widows. And why? Because it's the way of Jesus. So Catholic traditions, certainly Lutherans, it's just when it comes down to being pragmatic, there's a lot about the God and the ways of the Old Testament and fire and fury that make sense, man. When you just want to kick some ass, when you just want to have right and wrong, when you want to have black and white, and you've got four-fifths of the Bible that you can turn to and find a passage, and, and, and then you can pick and choose from the New Testament as well uh, if you want to. So there's plenty in there because the Bible was written by humans. And, um, we like to do those things. But yeah, I mean, the, you know, the, what, it, what it means to be a Christian is that you follow Jesus. 
for Christians, Christ, not Christian, Christ. We're little, supposed to be little Christs. So the way that we're most supposed to understand the world and, and, and interact in the world in our faith is to try to be like Jesus. And that means the way we read the scriptures as well. So that, that's something that I, that I was kind of taught in you know, a number of scholars like Karl Barton Bonhoeffer and, and others of uh, you know, that Christocentric understanding of, of theology and the Bible is, is important. So it's a, it's a good thing to, when you're having your conversation with your friends and you're talking about the Bible, just bring it back to Jesus. Keep bringing it back to Jesus. Let's talk about Jesus. Let's have Jesus. Um, before, we, before we close up here and um, kind of pray and end, uh, I wanted to give you guys a heads up about the next series that we're going to be talking about. It's called Sex, Love, and Relationships. I think it's going to be really good. I think it's going to give us an opportunity in the common room to do things a little more. Uh, I just think it's going to fit the common room really well. We're going to talk real specifically about sex and relationships today and what is a modern Christian ethic and what does it mean. And we're going to talk about like polyamory and uh, we're going to talk about um, same-sex relationships, what the church has said about these things in the past, what do we do with that, how in today's world when people are in all different kind of iterations of sex and sexuality and relationship, how do we make sense of that as Christians, and how do we even use the Bible to make sense of that? So, Alice's hand around, um, what I've got on here are a number of the possible kind of topics or things that we can um, talk about uh, in the course of this series. And I would love all of you, I would like the folks from the common room to take kind of a, a, a lead in helping to shape this, not just for this community, but, but for this group, but also for the, the rest of the other services. So this is, this is the homework that I would love to give you, is just to look this over, think, think about it. That QR code will take you to, uh, we've already got set up, starting in February, some small groups. Some of you are a part of the Donnie Boltzweber's uh, group that read through Shameless about sex and sexuality. Um, but we're going to do some more of that kind of stuff, but more specifically for youth and children, for couples, uh, and then just in, in general. And so if you scan that QR code, it'll take you to kind of some, some stuff that, that tells you more about things that are happening practically. But uh, we, don't, we don't have, I'm gonna be preaching, we're gonna be leading um, our sermons through this series too, uh, through February and March. If there are specific things that you think, you know what, this would be great, and not just that, I would bring these three friends, because I think it's really important that, they, that we talk about this kind of stuff. I think this is an opportunity for this group to um, think about people that you would like to invite. Um, and we will be talking about penises and vulvas and anal sex and all the things that you don't typically talk about in church. Why? Because it's who we are. It's what sexuality is about. Um, and, and let's talk about it honestly like adults. And how do you add a spirituality and ethic to that in a way that doesn't say my spirituality is over here and my sexuality is over here. Or my relationships over here. And I know the church wants me to do this, but I'm not doing that. But, I mean, that's bullshit. None of us want to live our lives that way. And so we want to we wanna bring that Jesus hermeneutic to our penises and our vaginas and our relationships and our everything. Um, so that's what we're going to do. Um, questions, thoughts? How do you want us to share that feedback? Well, if you, if you want to just email me, you can. Um, or uh, Kristen's out of town right now, so probably easier to send it to me. But you guys, if you don't have my email, I can give it to you. But P-Rock at secondpress.org. But if there's some of these, or if this spurs a thought in your mind, you're like, oh, actually, this isn't on there, but I'd like to talk about this. Um, you know, I, I would like it to come to the end of this with literally like a, let's, let's give ourselves as, as followers of Christ who live in the 21st century, um, what are some things that we can agree upon that this is, this is still important? Words like consent, or words like 
mutual mutuality and love. Like, how, how do you apply those that we can still say there are these ideals that we as followers of Christ hold to, but they still apply to a very complex and interesting world that is no longer just men and women and nuclear families. Um, do you? I'm All so right. excited. Are you? I'm so, I'm so excited. excited. Good. I'm like a nerd about this. Great. Great, great, great. I have a book in mind. Excellent. Yeah, that's so we'd love to put together a resource list. You know, hyperlinks as well as physical books that you can read. We'd love to, what, and the other thing that we'd love to do is if, and maybe Hannah, maybe you'll be one of our guest speakers, but if there are people that you think, oh my God, would it be awesome if we could get this person to come and talk about, please tell me. This, is, this would be a great opportunity. We've already got a woman from St. Paul's who's, who talks about sex and spirituality, St. Paul's Theology School of Theology, who's going to come. We spoke at the open table last year. Who's going to come and, and be a guest one of those weeks. But this is, we're wide open. This is wide open. So if you've got thoughts, ideas, people, resources, let's start to collect that. And actually, Alex, are there ways that we can do this on our website or, or Facebook page that we could collaboratively start to start to throw us have some discussions? Or, or what would be the best thing to do? Sure. I mean, as far as collecting ideas, or uh, yeah, I mean, I think it'd be easiest just to say, "Hey, has anybody read this book?" Or here's this thing. We could kind of have some sort, some sort of an online uh, dialogue or something that we could then grab from and create some resource lists or something. I mean, I think a Google Doc would actually be the easiest. Oh, really? Give, okay. Give access to everybody and uh -huh. put our ideas there. And mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounds good. Okay. So next week, our, our final in this, we're talking about biblical characters, is uh, Nick Pickrell is going to be here, and he's talking about Zacchaeus. You guys know who Zacchaeus is? Was a wee little man. Jesus saw Zacchaeus. He was a tax collector, which means he was a jerk. And he did things that were not nice to people, took people's money. And, uh, and Jesus said, hey, I want to have dinner in your, at your house. And he calls him, and everyone's like, oh my God, he's going to eat dinner with a tax collector. And he does, and in the course of that time, Zacchaeus kind of gives his life to Jesus. And as a response, he gives his money back to the people that he swindled. And so Nick's going to be talking about Zacchaeus as the example of reparations and how we should think about reparations in our society as a, as a biblical notion. So that'll be our last in this series, and then we'll move into sex, love, and relationships. Let's, let's do this. Let's stand and... Uh, if you are not okay with it, you can give knuckles. If you are okay with it, you can actually touch hands. Uh, God, we confess to you our need to simplify those, to hold them on pedestals, Lord, to hate them, and then you ask you to forgive us. God, help us not to allow other people to do that to us, but do that to ourselves. God, help us to recognize that you, dear Christ, are in the whispers. You're in the, you're in the journey. As much as we'd like to see you in the fire or the Dear Christ of the whispers, of the journey, of the paradox, we pray that you would reveal yourself to us in new ways, that we could be followers of you, dear Jesus. May we live our lives in such a way and love others.